This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Gospel of Mark called Jesus in Action. Mark chapter 11, we're going to read the first 11 verses this afternoon. But I want to say this, that if I ever raise someone from the dead, should such astounding power emanate from these puny little fingertips, I would really, really hope that makes it into my autobiography. There are many things that will be dropped out and forgotten, but I'm quite sure that if I had raised someone from the dead, that would not only be in my biography, but that would be on the front cover, on the back page, and fill up most of the volume. The Gospel of Mark is amazing not only for what it includes, but also for what it leaves out. Because what is not in the Gospel of Mark, and what ought to be if we were doing an exhaustive chronological depiction of the life of Jesus, is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. It is the central event in the Gospel of John, John chapter 11. Jesus raising his good friend Lazarus Lazarus from the grave, the tombstone slides away, and Lazarus steps forth, brought back to life. It's an astounding miracle, and Mark does not even mention it. That is edited out. It's on the cutting room floor. There are even more important things for Mark to be talking about than the raising of someone from death to life. What is striking about Mark and about all the Gospels is that a third of Mark's Gospel, at least, is devoted to the final week of Jesus' life. You will read no biography of any political, military, or religious leader that is so focused on their death. And to be sure, Mark has a lot to say about Jesus' healings, his miracles, and his teachings. But clearly, what is most important for Mark as was for all the early Christians, was how and why Jesus died. For them, the death of Jesus clearly has some great significance. And so here we are in Mark chapter 11. This sermon should really be preached on Palm Sunday in the month of April, but here we are in January. This is how much Mark stretches out this time. And the week starts with exuberant singing And a parade. Let's read, shall we? Mark chapter 11, the first 11 verses. Hear the word of the Lord. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went, found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest heaven! Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. 
He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Here we are in Mark. Jesus and his disciples have been steadily moving south from Galilee. Jesus' face has been set like flint to his destiny at Jerusalem. And we are at the end of a long string of many, many miracles, many which are not recorded in Mark, but many remarkable miracles which are culminating in this blind beggar Lazarus crying out to Jesus and being given his sight at the gate to Jericho. There's a little picture of this in Isaiah chapter 35, which speaks of the end times. And Isaiah says, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. And a highway will be there, only the redeemed will walk there, and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing, and everlasting joy will crown their heads. And here we have this prophecy at least partially being fulfilled. We're at Bethany, at the foot of the Mount of Olives, about three kilometers, two miles from Jerusalem. Jesus is in the town of Bethany, the home of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And he is about to enter the royal city of David, Mount Zion, Jerusalem itself, the city that God loves. And our passage this afternoon is all about the kingship of of Jesus. Christ Jesus is the king. And everything he's doing in this passage is taking on royal significance for himself. And so I want to share with you four things about Jesus' kingship that we find in this passage. The first one is this. Jesus is the king who organizes his own coronation. He organizes his own coronation. Here Jesus is, and he sends two disciples ahead to collect a colt. And Matthew tells us it's not a horse colt, it's the colt of a donkey. It's a young donkey. Now, I'd always read this passage assuming that Jesus was exhibiting some miraculous supernatural foreknowledge in this passage, which could be, it could also be that Jesus had simply arranged ahead of time with a disciple in the village ahead, can you share your little donkey with me at such and such a date? Either way, the two disciples find themselves following this well-organized plan that Jesus knows about, but they don't. They're just doing what Jesus asked them to do. And as they do so, it all falls out exactly as Jesus has described. It must have been a very small village they went to. Because in most towns in ancient Israel, houses were built around a central courtyard. But these houses are so small and spread apart that the the door is right by the street. It's a small little town with a dirt road running through it. And tied up beside the door is a young donkey. It's never been ridden before, this immature little beast. And there's some guys hanging out there. I may be taking liberties with the text, but I imagine they're wearing Adidas tracksuits, they're smoking a cigarette, squatting by the side of the house. And the disciples, probably those two disciples, probably felt a little bit nervous walking up to that door towards that donkey. And I expect they probably wished a couple of other disciples had been picked instead. What about Peter? He's always opening his big mouth. Or maybe James and John. They wanted all the glory and stuff. How about these awkward little jobs that Jesus asks us to do? I once dropped my friend Josh off at the airport in Vancouver. And he had a very early morning flight. And I picked him up at his house at about 4 o'clock in the morning and drove him to the airport. 
And as he got out of the car, he was fumbling with his bags and so forth, and he realized that he'd forgotten his boarding pass. And I'm not quite sure why. He had, he had time left for his flight, but he sent me back to his house to get his boarding pass. I don't really recall why he didn't come with me, but he sent me back, and he was living with this older couple. And he said, okay, my bedroom is the second bedroom on the left upstairs. So here's the key. Open the door, and you know it'll be just as I describe it to you. So here it is. 4.45 in the morning, I'm opening the door to a house I've never been in before. I know there's some small, little, barky, bitey dog inside the house. I know you're all hoping that I opened up the wrong bedroom door and someone pulled out a gun and nothing like that happened. But I was not very happy with my friend and it was kind of a tense and awkward and potentially embarrassing moment. And you know what? Sometimes Jesus asks his disciples, us, to do things that might make us feel a little bit nervous. That might put us in a situation that fills us with embarrassment. We feel our own faces becoming hot with tension and anxiety. And this may be what Jesus asks us to do. The disciples did not know all of Jesus' plan. He just told them, do this and this will happen. And these two unnamed disciples had to trust that Jesus was in control, that Jesus had a plan, Jesus had a program, and things would fall out the way Jesus had described. It was very wise, I think, that Jesus sent his disciples out in pairs. Because if it had just been one disciple, he might have chickened out. But having two of them, they kind of encourage each other and give each other strength. And so the disciples walk up to this doorway in this strange village. These guys are hanging out there. And as they start to pick and fumble at the knot, one of the men speaks up and says, hey, what do you think you're doing with my donkey? And the disciples quickly come out with what Jesus had told them to say. The Lord needs it. He will send it back to you shortly. And the man's face clears. Ah, well, of course, no problem. If the Lord needs it, please help yourself. I'm very sorry I shouted at you. Here, let me help you untie this knot and help you along on your way. Now, it's kind of odd in this story, as I was looking at that here we have the story of Jesus entering to Jerusalem is only 11 verses long, and Mark has chosen to spend six of those precious verses describing how Jesus organizes, organizes, organizes his ride in the procession. Now, that's a little bit odd, isn't it? If I go on vacation, I might rent a car. But if I show you my photos of the vacation, I don't spend most of the time with shots of how I went up to the rental counter and gave them my passport and my driver's license, how I declined all the optional insurance they were trying to sell me, how I inspected the car, how I got lost in the parkade and finally got out of there. The car rental is of very little consequence in describing a vacation or a trip. But for Mark... The organization of Jesus' mount is, for some reason, very important. One reason, I think, is this. It's that Jesus is orchestrating his own coronation. Jesus is organizing his own enthronement. It's all about Jesus and him bringing to pass his own plan for how he's going to become king. This is important. Because at one time, the crowds were so excited about Jesus and his miracles and the bread that he was multiplying, they wanted to take him by force and make him king. And the disciples themselves, as we know, they have visions of sugar plums and glory dancing in their heads. 
and they are very pumped up about the kind of king they imagine Jesus is going to be. But Jesus does not wait for them to organize a nice little surprise for him, to make him the king themselves. Jesus is the one who is going to make this happen. And for a long time, for months and years, Jesus has keeping his identity on the down low. In Mark, we continually find Jesus saying, I've healed you, but I solemnly warn you, don't tell anyone what I've done. This is a secret. But now, at last, Jesus is throwing off his mantle of secrecy, and he's going to step in the open and boldly proclaim, this is who I am. This procession is not organized by the crowds. It's not organized by the disciples. It's organized by Jesus himself. And he has chosen where, when, and how it will happen. And it's really important for us to remember that Jesus' kingship does not depend on us. He's not leaning his hopes and dreams on your frail shoulders. And that is very, very good news indeed, isn't it? And we're all tempted to think that we are the ones who bring about Jesus' kingdom, that somehow he needs us to organize things, to plan things, to bring them to pass. It does not depend on us. Jesus has not consulted the 12. He's not sat them down for around a dinner table to get their advice and their input. He is governed only by the will of his heavenly father. Most kings and queens, even the best royalty and presidents and leadership in history, have depended heavily on professional expert staff. To do their planning and their organization, Jesus is not that kind of king. He is in total, calm, and complete control of everything that happens in his realm. And our job is not to inform him, to advise him, to direct him, or even like Peter, correct him. Our job as Jesus' subjects is only to trust and obey. There's no better way than to trust and obey. And being sent to untie a little donkey may not have seemed like the most strategic, honorable job to those two disciples. May not have seemed to be the top priority in bringing about the kingdom that they imagined. But If that was what Jesus asked them to do, it was the safest thing they could possibly have done. And Jesus may send you to some dusty little village with guys sitting around in tracksuits, and you're wondering, why on earth am I here? This seems like a complete waste of time. And I can imagine a hundred more significant and more strategic things I could be doing for the kingdom right now. But if King Jesus has assigned you to go to that place, and has told you to do a certain thing, there is no safer, no wiser, and no more fruitful thing than you could possibly be doing than the will of King Jesus for you at that moment. So Jesus is the king who organizes organizes his own coronation. Not just then, but forever. In eternity, Jesus has a kingdom, and he is going to reign from sea to sea. The islands and the coastlands are going to bow to him, And though we participate, we are not the ones who organize or secure this kingdom. Jesus does. Now, number two, second thing about Jesus' kingdom. Jesus is the king who has the right to claim what he needs. Jesus is the king who has the right to claim what he needs. And the secret password that unlocks this donkey is this. The Lord needs it. The Lord needs it. Now, that word Lord is a bit of an unusual title for Jesus in Mark. 
Normally, Jesus is called, you know, the Son of Man or some other title. Lord means literally master or owner. And Luke's account, he makes it clear, one of the guys by the house is the owner of the donkey. And the word owner for the owner of the donkey is the same word, Lord, kurios. Jesus is the owner of all things. And what Mark is describing here is this practice of angaria or impressment. That meant that a king or a prince had the right at any time to take someone's property and use it for his own purposes. The needs of the subject were underneath the needs of the kingdom at any given time. In the Second World War, there was a massive evacuation that needed to happen at Dunkirk. There were hundreds of thousands of soldiers on the beach. And the British government was very concerned that the Germans were going to, who had already surrounded them, were going to destroy and wipe out this force. And so Churchill directed that all the small craft, all these little boats and yachts and fishing vessels, were going to be impounded and used and sent across the channel to rescue these soldiers. Impressment, requisition. The requirements of Christ's kingdom supersede your own right of private ownership. If you belong to Jesus, if you are his subject and you have bowed to him as Lord, you are saying, everything that I own, I am only a steward of, and ultimately, it belongs to Jesus. It's like being in a family. This week, Solange was sick, and she threw up on the curtains and a number of other things at once. And I went into her room, and I took her chair and climbed on the chair to take the curtains down. It was her chair, but as her dad, I have the right, one of the many privileges of fatherhood, to go and take what belongs to my kids and use it temporarily for my own purposes. They think they own stuff, but really, I own all their stuff. (laughs) And if we go out for lunch, I have the right, as their dad, to reach over and help myself to some of their french fries, right? And if they say, no, Dad, those are my French fries, I can say, well, I was, I was the one who paid for them, and therefore I have the right to help myself to a large handful of your fries. <laughs> it's the same way with Jesus. He pays for everything. He owns everything. It all belongs to him. The cattle on a thousand hills belong to Jesus. And as the Son of God, Christ is the heir of all things. It all belongs to him. And even the little donkey tied up outside your door is only being lent to you and can be used at any time for Jesus' purposes. And therefore, if Jesus owns everything, he has the right, the kingly right, at any time to requisition anything that belongs to you. Anytime he wishes, he can come to you for your money, your possessions, your friendship, your time, your relationships, your health, or even your very life. And all Jesus needs to say is, the Lord has need of it, and that is reason enough. You notice the owner of this little donkey was not given any other reason than the Lord needs it. It's the only reason he was given. He was not invited to submit his own conditions or suggest any delays. The Lord needs it. And that was enough for him. And it ought to be enough for us. We talk about tithing sometimes in the Christian church, this idea that 10% of our stuff belongs to God and 90% belongs to us. Is that really how things should be? Are we really fulfilling the the will of God and congratulating ourselves on our spirituality and nobleness if we give God 10% of our stuff? 
Of course not. In principle, it all belongs to him. And we should hold everything we own, everything that belongs to us, with loose hands, offering it to God whenever he chooses to collect it from us. The knot of your donkey should be easy to untie. It should be tied up loosely at the door of your house, by the street, so that any of Jesus' disciples can collect it at any time. It should not be in a fortified warehouse, way back, tied up with chains, with alarms on the hair trigger, and people with a shotgun standing outside, okay? It should be easy for Jesus to come and ask us for something, and for us to promptly, sincerely offer it up to him. See, being a Christian means, above all, that you confess that Jesus is Lord. That is the central confession of Christian discipleship. Jesus is Lord, and I am not. I am not my own. I am bought with a price. I belong to Jesus, and he has every right over me. And maybe it's not the donkey you own that Jesus wants. Maybe you yourself are the donkey that Jesus wants. You're that little donkey that Jesus wants to use for his purposes, and we must offer ourselves up willingly to Jesus. And of course, as Paul says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. I mean, anyone can say it with their mouths, but to say it with deep meaning, Jesus is Lord of my life, only the Holy Spirit can bring about that kind of change in a person. And there are many signs that we can be deceived about, about whether someone is truly following Jesus, is truly born again, has truly come to faith in Jesus. But if they do not confess and live out, Jesus is Lord, they do not belong to him. And if they do confess Jesus is Lord, however many of their imperfections, we can be sure that the Holy Spirit has been at work in that person's life. One little detail I love here is that Jesus promises to return the donkey. His message to be passed through the disciples is very short, but he says, tell them, tell them, tell the man, the Lord needs it and will send it back shortly. See, Jesus has every right to keep the donkey. As the king, he can just take that donkey and keep it permanently for himself. But Jesus is not the kind of king who plunders his subjects, who squeezes and soaks them for everything they can possibly give him. Despite the great weight of Jesus' upcoming crisis, what awaits him in Jerusalem, he still has a piece of his mind that's reminding himself that donkey must be returned to that man when this is all over. You see, Jesus will be debtor to no man. He will never allow us to feel that we have given more to Jesus than he has given to us. At the end of history, all debts will be paid back, everything will be sorted out, all accounts will be rendered, and no one here will have the slightest cause to complain that Jesus squeezed something out of you or that he was a hard master. Anything that Jesus takes will not only be returned, but be returned a hundredfold. I'm not sure if the owner of the donkey was a disciple. I, I rather think that he was. And I'm sure he was very proud of that little donkey in after years. And when people would come over to his house, he would say, hey, you want to check something out? This is the donkey that Jesus himself rode on the week before he died. And that little donkey, I am sure, was far more precious to him after Jesus had used it than it ever was before. 
And the same with anything that we offer to Jesus. You are not going to lose anything you give to Jesus. He will make it a hundred times more precious and more valuable than it ever was before. There's an old saying you can find on gravestones sometimes. It's this, what I gave, I have. What I gave, I have. In fact, the only things we can keep are those we give away to Jesus. I have bought a lot of junk in my life. I have put in a lot of Amazon orders, as Michelle well knows. There's a lot of things cluttering up my office, things that I was really excited about, and I couldn't wait for that USA to Georgia alert to come so I could rush down there and get my little package. And I'm sorry to say the joy of that purchase did not last very long. And in fact, now it's cluttering up my room and my life. But when it is time for us to die, when we finally stand before God on the day of judgment, we will have no feeling of regret over those things that we offered up to Jesus. We may well have many other regrets, but we will not feel ashamed or regretful about anything that we gave over to Jesus. In fact, we will look back on what we gave as the things that now last with certainty, and we will be filled with joy and satisfaction for everything that we invested in Jesus' kingdom. Thirdly, The third thing about Jesus' kingship is this, that Jesus is the king who rides in peace. He's the king who rides in peace. And the animal that Jesus rides on and that Mark spends so much time focusing on is highly symbolic. All these animals in the Bible are very symbolic because he chooses a donkey colt. Now, we have these cultural assumptions modern cultural assumptions about donkeys that we have to kind of clear our mind of. Because when you read the Old Testament, you might be surprised to discover that donkeys are the typical transport for the kings and princes of Israel. They are royal vehicles. Perhaps one day I shall preach a series or write a book called Great Donkeys of the Bible, because there are a lot of great donkeys in Holy Scripture. And here's a great donkey of the Bible. In 1 Kings chapter 1, David is old and dying. And as happened in the ancient world, the different sons of the king were kind of angling to see which of them was going to succeed him. And David had promised Bathsheba that her son Solomon would be the king. He was younger. He was a bit weaker. And so David, to ensure that Solomon would be the one who would sit securely on his throne after him, organizes a coronation ceremony for Solomon. And 1 Kings 1 says that he sat Solomon on his own donkey. The royal mule was... Solomon's seat, and Solomon is escorted into the city, and the people are playing pipes, and they are rejoicing so loud that the ground shakes. That is what donkeys are all about in the Old Testament, rather surprisingly. And it is significant that Jesus rides a donkey, not a horse. One time I saw in a Christian bookstore, and you only really find these things in North America, there was a special Bible version called the Horse Lover's Bible. There is a Bible for everyone, including 12-year-old girls, the Horse Lover's Bible. And that person would have been quite disappointed because the Bible clearly says that God does not delight in horses. (laughs) Horses are not God's favorite. I'm sorry, this is a shattering message for you this afternoon. I might be just totally upending one person's world here. God does not delight in horses, nor in the legs of a warrior. Because you know what? Horses were military animals. And at least 90 or 95% of the time you encounter a horse in the Old Testament, it's being used in the context of warfare. 
Donkeys are never used for warfare. You know why? Because donkeys are smart animals. And nothing is going to convince a donkey to charge into a thicket of spears and pikes. (laughs) Only a horse would be dumb enough to do that. Donkeys, never. And so donkeys are a symbol of peace in the Bible. They're a peaceful, a royal but peaceful animal. Horses are a symbol of war. And in fact, at the Passover festival, which is what these pilgrims are celebrating, they're singing the song of Miriam, the horse and its rider you have thrown into the sea. Horses are a symbol of violence that God, by his mighty power, hurls into the ocean so that a king on a donkey can rule instead. This is what Jesus' kingship is all about. Muhammad, by contrast, rode into Mecca on a war horse followed by 10,000 soldiers, and they killed or enslaved anyone who did not bow down to the prophet and his message. Jesus is not like this, and his reign over this world owes nothing to weapons of violence, to fear or coercion. He overcomes his enemies with the power of God's love, and he disarms the rebel so that he can adopt him into God's family. And all of us here who believe in Jesus, we have been overcome by the power of Jesus. We haven't been forced into his kingdom by the power of the sword. We've been lured into the kingdom by the powerful love of Jesus. And so this animal that Jesus rides, that Mark spends so much time focusing on, sends a pointed message, a surprising message about the kind of king he is versus the kind of king that people are expecting. Fourthly, Jesus is the king who inspires shouts of joy. The crowd brings this colt to Jesus and they throw their cloaks over it as a, as a saddle. The disciples do, rather. And Jesus sits down and rides this donkey. Now, if you've been paying attention in Mark, Jesus walks everywhere. Except when he's forced to take a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is walking, and he must have worn through many, many pairs of sandals as he goes up and down the land of Israel and even far outside its borders. Jesus walks everywhere. But now, three kilometers from Jerusalem, he stops and he sends ahead because he needs to ride a donkey the last few miles. We were just in Metzgeta in the like, National Cathedral there, whose name I forget how to pronounce And in the center of that cathedral, if you've been there, is a massive throne. It's on a platform elevated a foot above the ground. It's about this wide, and it is elaborately uh, elaborately carved in wood. It's a beautiful object. You don't see thrones in most Orthodox churches. You don't see chairs, in fact. You You go to an Orthodox service, and you stand for two hours. But if you were the king, it's probably one of the most comforting privileges of being a Georgian king, you got to sit down in the center of the church and enjoy the service. No one else sits, only the king. And here Jesus is the one sitting. And he's surrounded by pilgrims who have come to Jerusalem from all over the world celebrating the high feast of Passover. Passover, celebrating the Exodus when God had delivered the people of Israel from slavery and oppression and death in Egypt. And you can imagine the Roman authorities were on a high alert because the parallel between Egypt and Rome was very clear for all to see. And here are the Israelite pilgrims celebrating that God has delivered his people, and they are expecting that one day God is going to deliver his people again. And to their excitement, as they've been traveling, as they've pressed through the gate of Jericho, they have seen 
Jesus, this miracle worker, this prophet from God, heal a man who was blind. That must have blown their minds. And if they were excited already, now they are filled with fervor and joy about what God is doing. And as Jesus' little donkey travels along the road, they take their cloaks off their back and fling them in the road in front of Jesus so that this little donkey can trod on a royal carpet. And those who don't have cloaks rush into the fields and they break branches and they strew the streets, the street in front of Jesus so that this donkey can have a royal procession. And they are shouting. They are in front of Jesus. They are behind Jesus. And they are shouting and they are singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, I'm not sure this crowd fully understood the significance of what they were saying. And they were probably kind of swept up in the moment. And even the disciples who have been with Jesus for three years are kind of groping around in the fog, aren't they? They're like that man who was half healed of blindness and saw people like trees walking around. They don't really understand what is going on. But I have to ask, if even the immature and if even the confused are worshiping Jesus with shouts of joy, how about those of us who know and love Jesus for who he truly is? This church should be a place filled with shouts of celebration. We should not be quiet and dour and reserved. We should be shouting and singing that God has anointed Jesus as a king who is so wise and so good and so strong to reign over us. Everything Jesus does as king is for the joy of his people. He is not reigning because he craves power. As the son of God, Jesus has power enough already. For Jesus to become our king is him stepping down and condescending to rule over us. And he does so because he loves his people. He knows that we need a shepherd. We need someone to guide us, to protect us, to give us wisdom and direction and provision. And that is what Jesus does. And his mind, even now, as he sits at the right hand of God, is filled with plans to bless his church, to save his church, to protect his church, and to bring his church at last to feast in the heavenly Zion. See, if we're filled with the Holy Spirit, the highest joy of our hearts should be to worship Jesus, should it not? We shouldn't be like those people that Paul talked about. Everyone is concerned with their own interests, not the interests of Jesus Christ. We can all get fired up for what God can do for us, but are our hearts burning with the desire for Jesus to be exalted? Does that fill us with joy and happiness thinking about Christ? Because at the center of the Christian life is this, personal loyalty to King Jesus. That is what what is at the center. And so the highest and noblest activity of this church and of every Christian is worship. There are many ministries in this church and many things you do in your life that are going to fall away when Jesus returns and makes everything right. But what will not fall away is worship. Whatever we do in eternity in the new Jerusalem, we will be worshiping Jesus and singing worthy is the lamb that was slain. And so Jesus not only was the king, he is the king who inspires shouts of joy, and he will forever and ever. Finally and fifthly this. Did I say four points? It's five. This is a bonus point. Jesus is the king who saves his people. What the pilgrims are singing from is from Psalm 118 that they are quoting. Psalm 113 to 118 were known as the Egyptian Hillel. 
the songs of praise that were traditionally sung at Passover. So they were just pulling right out of their little hymn book and singing this song to Jesus. And Hosanna, like it does for us at that time, just meant kind of praise God. But originally in the Psalms, it means save us. It's a cry for salvation. Now, I have to recant something I said last week. Can I take something back? I was speaking, I think unjustly, about the crowds here shouting Hosanna were later the crowds who shouted, crucify him, crucify him. Reading and thinking about it, maybe that's not necessarily the case. Maybe these pilgrims from outside were not the same city dwellers who were shouting for the execution of Jesus. But they, these crowds here did misunderstand what salvation meant. And when they're singing, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, they're thinking of this golden age restored, the oppressors destroyed, and political freedom and power. There's this document from the time of Jesus called the Psalms of Solomon. Not the Song of Solomon, one of my favorite Bible books, by the way, but the Psalms of Solomon. And there, there is this prayer for God to raise up a Davidic Messiah. It says this, raise up for them their king, the son of David, undergird him with the strength to destroy the unrighteous rulers, to purge Jerusalem from Gentiles who trample her to destruction, to smash the arrogance of sinners like a potter's jar. This was the salvation that people in Jesus' time were praying for. And you have to sympathize with them a little bit. When I was in elementary school, I was bullied quite a bit. I was always the smallest little runt in my class, and there were some pretty mean older boys who would love to smash my head against a wall or shove me into a puddle. And I had my little fantasies of taking revenge on them, of studying Taekwondo and just smashing their teeth into the back of their mouth. And it would have been awesome. It would have been awesome. I wish it had happened. (laughs) And the the Jewish people, Israel, is a small nation that has been bullied and kicked around, just like Georgia, in fact, invaded countless, countless times. And they, too, are longing for revenge. They are longing to be strong and powerful, to have their own strong, powerful king who can bring them salvation from the Roman, the Gentile oppressors. And in their mind, it was simple. Jew, good, Gentile, bad. Jew good, Gentile bad. Now, this political considerations from 2,000 years ago probably do not fill your own minds today. But we were all tempted to divide the world very simplistically into the good, which of course includes us, and the bad people. It might be by race or ethnicity. It could be by political parties in your own country, different religious groups, We're the good people, those are the bad people, and we would like God to bring those guys down and exalt us. We all have that temptation, and we forget what uh, the Russian novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn so wisely said, the line between good and evil runs within every human heart. Good and evil is right here in my heart and in your heart. And the oppressed can very easily turn into the oppressors. And it has happened many times within history. And so what Israel needs salvation from is not only the Romans, but more importantly, they need to be saved from themselves. And we need to be saved from ourselves and the evil that we commit and that we are capable of. Jesus came to confront the darkness within each one of us and to bring us into his kingdom of indestructible Light. That is what Jesus came to do. What is ominous about the story is what is missing. Anytime a king or an emperor would approach a city, 
A vital part of the ceremony was dignitaries from the city coming out to greet him with garlands and dancing and gifts and bring him into the city to make speeches to welcome him. Nothing like that is happening here. No one comes out from Jerusalem to greet Jesus. No priests, no rabbis, no Pharisees or Sadducees, no scribes, no rabbis. No one comes out to greet Jesus. The royal city of David, God's beloved Mount Zion, is hostile to Jesus. It's the center of resistance against Jesus. There's something else in Psalm 118 that the pilgrims did not sing, but it's in there. It's this verse. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That too is in there. They missed out on that verse. The stone the builders rejected. And the religious leaders had looked Jesus over They'd inspected him and they had deemed him unfit to lead God's people or to be anything that they wanted built into the temple of God. They have hardened their hearts. And at this very moment, while the pilgrims are singing and dancing, they are brainstorming ways to have Jesus murdered. And by Friday, just a few days away, Jesus will be exiting the city and he will be leaving the city under his own cross being kicked by Roman soldiers and jeered at by Jewish crowds. Jesus will conquer with bloodshed. He will conquer with shocking bloodshed. Shocking because it's Jesus' own blood. He is the king who reigns and conquers, not by killing other people, but by allowing himself to be killed. That is what the true king does for his subjects. Now, How do we apply a passage like this? How do we read about Jesus' triumphal entry and and make it something that goes to work in our own hearts? Can I suggest this? We are all tempted, like the people of Israel's time, to use Jesus for our, our own project of salvation, whatever salvation means to you. We're all at all tempted to harness the power of Jesus, and he has amazing power. The guy can do incredible miracles. He seems to control everything. If only we could somehow harness him or use him for our own schemes, how awesome would that be? And we all have this idea in my mind, this is what I need. This is what my family needs. Maybe even this is what the world needs. And how can I get Jesus to do it for me? Many, many Christians think this way, and I think we're all tempted to think this way. And we don't mind Jesus being on the throne as long as we are the shadowy power behind the throne, whispering into his ear and handing him papers to sign and speeches to give. We draw up our own plans and we give them to Jesus for him to bless them. Stamp it, approve it, and let me go on my way. This is not the kind of king that Jesus is going to be. He's not going to accept the long list of things that we want him to do for us. That's not how it works. Total freedom comes from submitting ourselves entirely to Jesus. Our sinful hearts don't like submitting, do they? We want to be the ones in control. We want to be the ones who determine our own destiny. But we are never so noble. We never stand so tall as when we bow our knee to Jesus. That is the true dignity of a human being, bowing before the true king. Jesus is the king. Jesus is at the center of the kingdom. 
He is our supreme Lord. He is the summit of all of our hopes. He is the theme of all of our songs. And just as Jesus organized his own coronation and established his own kingdom in his own way, so he's going to bring his kingdom to completion by his own power. And trust me, it will be far, far better for all of us. One day, Jesus will enter Jerusalem again, the new Jerusalem that descends from heaven. And he is going to lead all of us in in triumphal procession. The trumpet will sound, we will be raised from the dead, and we are going to be singing behind Jesus as he leads us into God's heavenly city. This is what Jesus has come to do, and he's going to reign over us forever and ever in the kingdom of joy and love and of peace. Shall we pray and ask God to bring this about? Holy God, we thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you that he is the king, that he has all power, all glory, and all dominion belongs to him. All authority in heaven and earth is his. Give us grace by your Holy Spirit to see that this is good news, that the announcement that Jesus is king is the best news we could possibly hear. And Lord, we ask that this would not be an empty confession or a theological idea, but may it more and more be reality in our own lives. Help us to bow to Jesus as Lord, to gladly, joyfully, promptly, sincerely give him whatever he asks for from us. And help us to trust that his way and his kingdom are the best that could possibly be. In his name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.